Now, the Three Martini Lunch with Greg Columbus and Jim Garrity. And welcome, everyone, to the Friday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. Daniel Foster, contributing editor at National Review Online, is in for the vacationing Jim Garrity today. And, Dan, it's good to have you back. And, of course, it's been a really quiet week. Nothing really big happening. So uh, hopefully we can fill the time here. It's just dead news cycle after dead news cycle. Yeah, The doldrums of August. That's right. Congress is out of town. Nothing's happening. Obviously not the case. Obviously not the case. And uh, as our regular listeners know, it's been a pretty somber week, obviously, in the, the wake of the mass shootings in El Paso and, and Dayton. And the gun debate is where we pick up today. We don't have any good martinis yet again. We have uh, bad, bad, and crazy, actually, today. But let's start with... Bad number one, uh, for those who are really loyal listeners, you'll know over the years, Dan Foster's general rule in politics is wherever Mitch McConnell is, that's probably the right place to be. But today, we're going to test that theory because Mitch McConnell, of course, is recuperating from his shoulder injury, and he's got a lot of his closest friends outside of his house pretty much on a daily basis now just protesting and demanding that uh, he reconvene the Senate to vote on gun legislation. Mitch McConnell on 840 WHAS on Thursday night talking with Terry Miners. And he says he's not bringing the Senate back because he wants there to be conversations before September about what could actually pass the Senate. So the issue that Miners brought up was an assault weapons ban. But here's what McConnell said in response to that. It's certainly one of the front and center issues. I think with uh, probably background checks and uh, red flags would probably lead the discussion, but uh, a lot of other things will come up as well. But what we can't do is is fail to fail to pass something. You know, by by just locking up and failing to pass, that's that's unacceptable. What I want to see here is an outcome, uh, not um, a bunch of partisan uh, back and forth. Dan, he was uh, extolling the virtues of Toomey Mansion, which was an expanded background check bill that he voted against in the wake of Sandy Hook back in, in 2013. But uh, when was the last time you heard Mitch McConnell join the, well, we got to pass something crowd? Well, I think, I mean, I t- so I should start by saying, by the way, that I wrote a piece a couple months ago now about McConnell for the Examiner magazine. And you know, like you said, my rule is usually that he has the best sense strategically of where the caucus needs to be. And that's one of the reasons why he's the longest serving Republican leader in Senate history. Um, but that piece was about, I don't know, 80 percent praise and 20 percent critique about maybe McConnell's lack of a grand vision and his over focus on judges or, or belief that judges might be the only really important thing that he has to or can do. And I'll tell you, that 20% did not sit well with certain people in McConnell world, in my experience. So my reputation as a McConnell fan uh, has taken a little bit of a dent. But I, I t- look, I take him at his word when he says he wants an outcome. And I think that's kind of semi-cynical and semi-sincere on his part. I think that, um, you know, McConnell would, would preferred outcome would be to find something that he can get votes for from his caucus. Um, And that's probably somewhere in the world of, you know, we saw the executive action on bump stocks that there really wasn't any pushback from, even though procedurally that was a little dicey. Um, There wasn't, you know, a lot of debate about it. It just sort of was one of those things that there was no energy in the Republican caucus to fight back against. I think in part due to just the the sort of scale and horror of the, the shooting that precipitated that talk. And similarly, I think there's just a kind of fatigue among, you know, the caucus in dealing with these issues, just as there's a fatigue, 
I think among a lot of Americans and waking up and, and, and hearing news of the latest. And so I take him at his word when he says he wants an outcome. I don't think that that means he's necessarily going to flip his vote on any particular measure, whether it's expanded background checks or something else. But I think what he's looking for is a, I don't want to say fig leaf, because I don't think that gives him quite enough credit, but I think he wants to find something bipartisan that it, that at least some members of his caucus can vote for. And he wants to be seen as being helpful in facilitating the passage there. I will just say, because, you know, I'm, I'm thankful that I, you know, I didn't have to sub in for Jim when this wound was still even raw. I'm one of I'm one of the people who thinks that there is something in the water in this country the last few years and that there is something a little bit different going on that's that's leading to all these things where all these mass shootings and all these things that we're seeing. I mean I, I know what the numbers are. I understand the empirical evidence and the long term decline in violence in this country and I accept all of that. I do think there's something up, though. And I think, to, to quote Marianne Williamson, it might even be some sort of dark psychic energy. But I don't, uh, it's one of those classic cases where the conservative says, don't just do something, stand there. Because I'm not convinced that we know what the tools are to fix it, that we can accurately even identify the problem yet, and certainly that the Senate can't turn around in a couple of weeks and solve it. So I, I, I agree that there's that there's something up here. I just, you know, I, as a... As a good Burkean conservative, I'm highly skeptical of our ability to fix it with legislation. And I think McConnell probably just wants a sort of symbolic victory here. Do you think that, uh, based on what you just said, that uh, McConnell, who is the ultimate political calculator, I mean, he said in the Rose Garden a couple of years ago, my job is to make sure the Republicans stay in the majority. And so does he feel that this issue has turned on Republicans and that uh, standing strong for the Second Amendment might not be the majority position anymore. I don't know if that's, first of all, I don't know if that's true as an empirical matter. And I, and I won't get inside, you know, I, I think there's still overwhelming support among those voters and frankly, a net, net majority support in the country for fairly robust Second Amendment protections. I don't think that has changed. I do think, as I said, there's some fatigue among sort of people around the margins of the Second Amendment community and some heartache, frankly, in dealing with this. And people are increasingly sort of confused and at a loss uh, for what to say and what to think about this stuff. Uh, I do think probably from McConnell's point of view, he saw what happened on bump stocks and he realized that there might be a little bit more room to maneuver than he thought in the past, you know, from a purely uh, political calculus. And then the other thing we got to remember here, Greg, is that the NRA is not exactly in tip top shape these days. <laughs> True. And that's a that's part of the equation, I'm sure. Um, I don't think anything has radically changed. I think, if anything, there's a slight additive cumulative effect dating back to some of those horrors from four or five years ago. And it might be, I think, to the detriment of uh, real civil libertarians, there might be a, a, a slow and gradual move, but I don't think it's anything drastic right now. All right, let's move on to our second bad martini. And Dan, this is one of the weaker bad martinis, we'll say right up front. Uh, we don't really have a lot of good things to say about most of the folks from a conservative perspective who are in the Democratic presidential field. In fact, all you really have to do to get us to like you this year is to say, maybe socialism's not such a great idea, everybody. And that's where John Hickenlooper comes in, former mayor of Denver, 
former uh, two-term governor of Colorado, also uh, big on gun control during his time as governor, I might add. Uh, looks like uh, he is doing some real soul-searching right now since he has not taken off in any way. He might not make the next debate stage. And so, according to the Washington Post, he's looking more and more at possibly switching over to the 2020 Colorado Senate race because it's a purple-to-blue state now, and Cory Gardner is the Republican incumbent, and he's seen as one of the more vulnerable ones. Uh, the Washington Post also pointing out that there's already a lot of Democrats in this field, so Hickenlooper wouldn't necessarily waltz to the nomination. So, Dan, it's a, it's a two-parter here. First of all, uh, it could make things harder for Cory Gardner, and things are hard enough already. And secondly, it's one less voice on the debate stage saying, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, you people are crazy because I'm not sure John Delaney can carry the whole load. Right. I think he, he, he's got the anonymous white guy problem in the <laughs> in the Democratic field that there's, you know, we I, I personally, as somebody who's following it fairly closely, was surprised to discover how many of these anonymous white guys there are. You think there's two and it turns out there's five. You know, they spread them out across the debates and you're not sure who's who. I just kind of call them Smith and Jones and Johnson. I, I don't even remember their names at this point. But, he, you know, the Hickenlooper, if he were the only guy uh, who fit that profile, it might be something. Because I think the calculus there is, you know, Biden's going to fall on his face. Spoiler alert for the crazy martini. Um, <laughs> and we want to pick up whatever that moderate vote is. But I think there's too many of them. They're too anonymous. None of them has star power. Um and so I think it makes sense from that perspective. I mean, it's great as somebody who cares about um, the Overton window or the future of the country broadly, that there are people on stage who are saying, now, hold on a second. You know, there's another way to be a Democrat. We don't all have to be singing the Internationale uh, up here on stage. Um, I, you know, so I, I, I mourn it from that perspective. But I, I think you'd be nuts not to see blood in the water with Gardner. Um, Gardner, who's a guy I, I, I admire fairly well as far as I can admire any politicians these days, but I think he's in big, big trouble. And I also think there's a bunch of weird stuff that's going to happen in 2020. I, I cite the example of my uh, childhood congressional t uh, district, New Jersey 5, which had Scott Garrett, who is literally the most conservative member of the House by most ratings, ACU ratings and the stuff like that. It's a great trivia question. Where was the most conservative member of that uh, Republican House conference from up until that year? It's not Alabama. It's not uh, Oklahoma. It's Northeast New Jersey. Um, and Garrett got kicked out by a Democrat, Gottheimer, who's sort of a technocratic centrist, uh, like some of those anonymous white guys on stage, uh, in a district where, by the way, uh, Donald Trump won by a tiny little bit. Um, so odd things are going to happen like that, uh, I think, in 2020, and that scrambles the calculus even more. I think it's possible that the president could be reelected and Gardner gets kicked out fairly easily in that seat. Um, so I, I don't think there's any sort of straightforward calculus um, predicts where things are going. I think we know that the race as it stands now, the presidential race is a toss up. But certainly if you're looking at vulnerabilities and you're uh, a guy like Hickenlooper, that's where the action is in the Senate. Speaking of Coloradans running for president, we briefly mentioned this on Thursday's Three Martini Lunch, Dan, and that was the tweet from uh, Colorado Senator Michael Bennett, who's also seeking the nomination this week. I think he got more attention for this than anything else, where he basically said, if you elect me, you don't really have to worry about seeing or hearing from me for about two weeks at a time. I'll just kind of show up when it really matters, and the rest of you can go on living your lives. How does that appeal to you after 20 years of the permanent campaign here? 
Oh, yeah, I think that is a totally winning message. I think there is an under, I think it's poorly understood the extent to which that is a winning message. I mean, we were all kind of tricked by the gonzo numbers that the debates did last time around because America was just so morbidly fascinated with what was happening on the Republican side and later on in the general election. But I think there are a lot of us who would rather not have to think about politics in every facet, every waking minute of the day, not have to wonder what Taylor Swift's position on the latest reversal in the Senate is, uh, not have to think about that stuff. And so I think that's a, a winning message. It just has to be coupled to somebody with a little bit more um, personal charisma and a little bit more of a, of a presence in the room. And again, spoiler for the crazy martini, but um, I, that's a version of what Joe Biden is trying to do. He just might not be the ideal vessel for that. <laughs> Which we'll get to in uh, just a second. But just to put a bow on it, we don't actually want Michael Bennett to be president. Uh, he's far too liberal on a lot of things. He'd probably be better than some of the folks he's sharing the stage with. But uh, we want someone who will leave us alone but do things the right way from a conservative Absolutely. constitutional standpoint. All right, let's move on to our crazy martini. And as Dan has so ably foreshadowed, it is Joe Biden. Joe Biden had an interesting day yesterday uh, in Iowa. He says we want truth, not facts. Or was it facts, not truth? Uh, that was that was one moment on the stump. But here's another one where he was in a more formal speech and he was really trying to make the point, I think, that uh, we just need to give an opportunity to disadvantaged kids because they've got as much potential as anyone else. But that's not how it came out. Here's how it came out. And the other thing we should do is we should challenge these students. We should challenge students in these schools to have advanced placement programs in these schools. We have this notion that somehow if you're poor, you cannot do it. Poor kids are just as bright and just as talented as white kids, wealthy kids, black kids, Asian kids. No, I really mean it, but think how we think about it. I was scrambling like Fran Tarkenton there, but uh, the the Biden campaign uh, putting out a statement saying he's made this uh kind of statement before he's just talking about how poor kids uh, are just as bright just as talented as as wealthier kids they just need a chance so dan this is not the only fumble he's had so many of them in the the weeks of this campaign and if a republican had said that and even if they had quickly corrected it we'd have a much different story today yeah but i just i, I need a second i need a crowbar to uncringe my face from just listening to that clip but uh you know, there's two things going on here. One is what I think is ironic about this is this shorthand that Biden is. If the classic definition of a Kinsley gap is to accidentally say the true thing um, out loud, say the quiet part loud, as it were, then I think, you know, there's something like that going on here because this shorthand that he's using for worse in this country has become the sort of de facto way that people on the left think about these things. The central debate of the last three years in some sense, certainly the central electoral debate, is whether the white working class exists, whether there are, you know, whether there is an underclass, you know, a white underclass that is facing challenges, or whether it's all just, you know, secret racism. So on the left, there's a very healthy dollop of thinking about things this way, the poor versus the white. Um, so in, in a weird way, he's tapping into that zeitgeist. But on the flip side, you know, he's he's was immediately, you know, savaged all over Twitter. It's typical Uncle Joe stuff. And what I think is so interesting about that, and again, uh, for the worse in our country, is that in many ways, you know, the media and the and the the gatekeepers sort of overseeing this election, the elites that are overseeing it, have learned nothing from the last three years because 
you know, what, the current president was subject to none of these rules. He is 100% gaff proof. Scientists are tinkering in laboratories trying to figure out what he could say <laughs> that would stick to him, right? It's just impossible. And yet they're determined to hold that. They're, I mean, you could argue about this empirically, but, you know, a guy who very plausibly has the best case of unseating the current president, they're determined to just crucify him for whatever gaff comes out of his mouth. And that's a bad recipe for Joe Biden because, you know, he produces gaffes at a fairly significant rate. But it's in, it's interesting to me that there's there's been no soul searching, no lesson learning that maybe you know infelicitous phrasings or slips of the tongue shouldn't be the thing that immediately disqualify you when the stakes uh, are as high as a presidential election. Um, certainly from the left's point of view, you know, seeing a guy who got into office uh, when nothing you know orders of magnitude worse than anything Biden's ever said could stick to him. It's, it's odd to me and ironic that they're determined to uh, hold their own candidates to this ridiculous uh, standard. So I actually, you know, I, I, I have big time problems with Biden dating. I used to sort of like him. And then, you know, one of the things that still sticks in my craw is that 2012 vice presidential debate where I think, he, you know, he really was a used car salesman, uh, you know, against Paul Ryan. And, and that was a really sort of shameful performance. And Lord knows I have my issues with them. But I just think it's interesting uh, that they are determined uh, on the Democratic side and in the, among the sort of media elites commenting on this election to have not learned anything from the last cycle. Well, that's certainly true. But do you think it'll cost them in the primary? We obviously know that whoever the Democrats nominate, the people who hate Trump, they'd, they'd vote for a wet sock against him. So if he's the nominee, that's not going to become a factor. But will it cost him in the primary? I'm not Sure. I don't have a good answer for that, but I will say that I'm sympathetic to the characterization of Biden's constituency. I mean, we have some data on this, right? We know he's really, really strong with African-Americans and with broadly, you know, centrists. Um, but I think the the more useful metric, and this has been mentioned by colleagues of mine like David French, and he's been hitting this drum for a while, but is that Biden's constituency are the Democrats who aren't on Twitter. And I think that's a really key thing to remember, because a lot of these fights happen on social media. But there are millions and millions of blessed Americans who are luckier than you or I, who are not uh, trapped in that social media hellhole. And are, you know, their calculus is a little different. And what reaches them is a little bit different. And the benchmark is a little bit higher. So while we're all playing these gotcha games, uh, and trying to nail these guys to the wall for slips of the tongue, I do think that his base and part of what's you know contributed to his robust lead are maybe older, less plugged in, more pragmatic, definitionally more centrist Democrats. Let's not forget, too, African-Americans are centrists by and large in the Democratic Party. None of the white woke liberals seem comfortable or able to talk about that, but that's a huge base of his support. And he's got, you know, those conservative and centrist, unwoke, unplugged in, untwittered uh, Democrats, certainly, um, it seems, in lockdown at the moment. So I'm not sure it's going to hurt him. I think if it happens enough times and if it happens on a big enough stage, um, you know, when it's down to maybe two or three candidates and people are really tuning into the debates, you know, then we'll start to see the damage. But you know what? His lead has proven more robust than I think a lot of us on the right have predicted and, and probably on the left, too. But I know a lot of uh, friends and colleagues of ours who confidently predicted that he would flame out in just a couple of weeks. And it hasn't happened yet. No, seems to be very steady. It's kind of what people expected from 
Trump, although in a very different circumstance in 2016. Wow, those early poll numbers look really good. That's not going to last. Right. Dan, always great to have you with us. Thanks for filling in for Jim, and we'll talk to you down the road. Thanks a lot, Greg. Daniel Foster is a contributing editor at National Review Online. And for Jim Garrity today, I'm Greg Columbus of Radio America. Thanks for being with us. Have a great weekend and tune in again Monday for the next Three Martini Lunch.